Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke named John Paul Jones, who... uh, Despite what a lazy Google search might tell you, he was actually a Scottish naval commander. He fought for the Continental Navy during the uh, the American Revolutionary War, uh, rather than the, for example, the John Paul Jones who played in Led Zeppelin, or I guess while we're at it, the uh, John Paul Jones, the the blonde beef slab who appeared on the the U.S. Bachelorette, also named uh, John Paul Jones. Look, I, I know you come to this podcast for you know for the in depth and very serious analysis of historically significant event figures, but I'd like to take a brief detour here from that, just just very briefly here, to read you some of the choice morsels from this modern day Hercules bio here on the, on the Bachelorette's website. <clears throat> when John Paul Jones isn't daydreaming about his future wedding, he enjoys travelling the world and contemplating the meaning of life. When referring to John Paul Jones, always use his full name, John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones rarely uses words that are less than three syllables long. What the bloody hell is going on there, John Paul Jones, old son? Do you, do you keep your head that far up your own ass for warmth or, or what? What? How can you possibly hope to talk to anyone without using monosyllabic words? I bet you, I bet you a hundred bucks. I bet you a hundred bucks. This bloke, he's one of those dipsticks who uses words like egregious and uh, uh, for all intensive purposes to try to sound smart. Anyway. Whatever. We're not here to chat about some perfect tooth dill pot who got booted off a rubbish reality TV show, mate. We are here for some more naval bloody history. I hope, you, I hope you've enjoyed it the last three weeks because there's more of it coming your way right here, right now. Had this one suggested to me by uh, alert listener Rob Hanton, who got in touch with that. Actually, actually sent me about five or six different ideas. So thanks so much, Rob. They're all crackers, and this was the one I went with this week. John Paul Jones, the original and the best. He's one of a, uh, one of a, a couple of blokes, actually who is known as the father of the U.S. Navy. And I'll tell you what, it's a bloody good reason for that. His story is uh, his story is pretty wild. Some of the stuff he got up to fighting uh, for the American Revolution, it was just bonkers. Uh, after fleeing to the American colonies to uh, to escape the law, he actually ended up in charge of uh, the Continental Navy ships. And uh, and after some pretty daring exploits against Britain over there in, in you know British waters, he became known as, uh, depending on your side, I guess, he became known as either a great war hero or a you know damnable dirty pirate. So we've got a lot to get through today, so let's not muck about and get stuck into old mate John Paul Jones, find out what his story was here. So going all the way back to 1747, July the 6th, when, uh, young, uh, when young John Paul was born in uh, a place that apparently was called Kirkcudbrightshire, which sounds, I mean, there are some ridiculous, some utterly stupid Scottish place names. Like there's a place called Stronnaclacker, which sounds like a swear word. Um, anyway, Kirk Cudbrightshire is in work, uh, southwest Scotland there, uh, a big estate called Arbigland, uh, south of Dumfries it is. And uh, his dad was a gardener on the estate. He was actually born there. Uh, now, I don't know if his parents were, you know, big Beatles fans or what, but, the you know, that's the name our young, heroes, uh, young hero gets here. He's, he's, he's John Paul. Uh, the Jones bit came a bit later, as we'll talk about that. Anyway, young fella grows up, takes to the sea at a young age, just uh, 13 years old he is, when he snags himself an apprenticeship aboard a, a vessel called Friendship, which uh, definitely runs against the grain of a lot of ship names. I mean, usually they're sort of given, you know, very impressive or scary names like Victory or Revenge, but... Uh, this time they're going, you know, around, they're going in a different direction by calling it the friendship, full of friendly friends, mate. I like it a lot. Anyway, 
Uh, he sets. That was not a very good joke. I do apologize for that one. I, I thought about when I was writing, like, well, I, I'll probably. I was like, I'll be able to pull that off when I'm recording, but no. Nah, mm. Anyway, can't be. They can't all be winners. Anyway, he sets sail from Whitehaven, and he friendship. What was I thinking? He's cutting about mer- he's cutting about merchant ships and unfortunately some slave ships as well. You know, obviously, you know, it's just sign of the times. There, very unfortunately, he was involved in, in the slave trade there. But uh, he's scooting across the Atlantic, visiting his brother William Paul on the other side of uh, in the colony, colony of Virginia. And generally, he's having, he's having a great time. Gets a couple of promotions here and there. He's working as a third mate in 1764, and uh, by 1766, he's actually a first mate in a in a ship that was called. And this is not a joke. This ship was called Two Friends, twice as friendly as the Friendship. Yeah, nah, shouldn't. Oh well. Anyway, um, he ends up having a, a bit of good luck in 1768 when he's on a uh, when he's on board a ship that is this time called just John. I mean, a bit of a waste, I reckon. I always think it's a huge waste when someone calls their their cat like Henry or or, or Ellen or something. You know, some other boring human name. You could call it anything. We call it chainsaw or aeroplane or something like that, mate. Anyway, aboard the John in uh, in 1768, disaster strikes when both the captain and another senior officer they die of yellow fever just like that. They keel over and die. And our mate John Paul he leaps into action here. He takes control of the ship and he manages to sail it all the way back to harbour just like that. Now the owners of the John they're so grateful, they're so impressed by his uh, by his behaviour there that they actually make him captain just like this. Can you imagine that huge big promotion from here? And they give him 10% of the ship's cargo as a bonus. Bloody brilliant. Paul's got it made in the shade right now. He's absolutely loving life. And from there, things go pretty smoothly for him, actually, uh, for a couple of years as he carts cargo across the Atlantic. But then, all of a sudden, 1770, it all comes a gutsa. Paul had a uh, very good reputation as a captain generally. He's very driven. He's a good-looking bloke as well. And he was, uh, you know, pretty well-spoken and, and, and reasonably intelligent fellow as well. So he was generally well-liked as a, as a captain at this stage. However... This uh, his reputation, unfortunately, uh, had to. Uh, well, it went. It, it definitely was was very badly damaged here in uh, in 1770 because uh, he ordered a mutinous crew member to be flogged. Right now, there's no definitive conclusion on this issue, but apparently, the flogging was a particularly nasty one. He really got stuck in. He did obviously not ideal there. And a couple of weeks later, this sailor actually died, which obviously it, it wrecked his reputation, you know, as a, as a, as a well-liked captain there. Even though there was talk of the sailor's death actually being caused by yellow fever here. But, uh, you know, we'll find out in just a minute. There's, there's a fair bit going on under the surface with this whole issue. In any case, what happens here? Paul, he ends up getting arrested for the death of this sailor uh, back in Scotland. And uh, he's, lo- he's locked up in Kirk Cudbright, which again, apparently, Apparently is a real place on this earth. But check this out. After being released on bail, the local governor comes to him and says, now listen here, John old mate, that bloke who died, right, he's from a big family of rich knobs he is, and they are going to come after you like you wouldn't bloody believe. They're going to come after you both hands, mate. You better be very, very careful. And Paul goes, oh, geez, mate, that's bloody terrible. That's bad news. What do you, what do you, what do you reckon I should do here? What's the play? And the governor says, mate, mate, listen, I'll tell you what, what you do, you make like a tree and you get the hell out of here because you're never getting a fair trial. If this family is going to start flexing their political muscle in the Admiralty Court, you're never, ever going to, you know, you're never getting away with it. I'll, I'll tell you that much for free. So Paul says, mate, look, thanks a million. You bloody saved me skin here. I'm going to make myself scarce. I'm going to get out of here. I reckon I'll go and lay low on the other side of the Atlantic. And obviously a very good idea there. You just to run away from the long arm of the law. In those days, you could get away with that sort of stuff and, and kind of just disappear off the face of the earth. But this is an interesting thing. 
This bloke who had died, he wasn't even really a sailor. He was just a wealthy scion of this rich family who was off on an adventure, thought it'd be good fun to go and, uh, you know, have an adventure on a sailing ship. And he was arguing, the reason he was flogged, he was arguing uh, about starting a mutiny uh, on the ship because the, the sailors weren't being paid in advance. He ran out of money and he wanted a bit of extra cash. So, I mean, from the face of it, from what I could see, wasn't really... Paul's fault here. I mean, maybe obviously, you know, giving giving someone's a flogging is never never a good thing to do to someone. But all the same, it, it, it's it's a little bit more complex than it may seem on the on the face of things there. And again, if he died of yellow fever, certainly um, not a, not a, not exactly the cut and dried case that this bloke's family was uh, was you know sort of hoping it to to make it out make it out to be there. Anyway, Paul buggers off, right? He uh, he uh, he scoots off out of there. He he knows that if this rich family comes after him, then uh, he's in big big trouble. So he shoots off out of Scotland, and he manages to snag a position as the captain of a merchant ship called Betsy, uh, which was heading over to uh, Tobago for a good long while here. So after this very narrow squeak, Paul's back to doing what he does best: sailing about, captaining, all the rest of it, having a great time. Now. Unfortunately, he hasn't quite finished killing his crew members because uh, sometime around 1772, so a couple of years after this first incident, he ended up killing another mutinous sailor, this time, however, with a sword. So obviously not a lot of ambiguity there. Can't really hope to claim, oh, no, it was just uh, just the yellow fever what done it there. You know, great big bloody sword sticking out of him. So uh, that's it for our mate John Paul, unfortunately. He later th- he later claimed that the killing was done in self-defence and the reason uh, that he never sort of, you know, went back and stood trial for it, tried to defend himself in uh, in the Admiralty Court was, of course, he knew that the other dead sailor's family had so much influence and was going to come after him. He knew that he, he, his better chances, uh, much better chance of, uh, of, of getting away, he just run away, just run away. And that's exactly what he did. He fled to the colonies in North America. He dropped everything, ran off to Fredericksburg in Virginia, changed his name for good measure, and uh, and he became John Paul Jones. Now, listen, I'm not an expert when it comes to evading the long arm of the law, but I would say that if you're going to change a name to avoid being done for something, like, you know, running a bloke through with a sword, which seems like a good strategy overall, you know, changing your name seems like a, a decent way to uh, to try to disappear in the weeds there. Don't change it by just adding one one new name to your old one. Don't do that. I mean, imagine these—you know, cops come come knocking on your door. They say, "Oh, you, you mate, you are you John Paul, the bloke you know what killed two of his sailors." And you go, "Oh, no, nah, mate, no, no, no. Very easy mistake to make. I'm John Paul Jones." And yeah, look, you know, even though I look a lot a lot like the bloke, obviously it's not me. I've got an extra name, see? So it's all, it all checks out. Anyway. John Paul Jones is his known now. He flees to Fredericksburg, uh, and there he takes over the estate of his brother William, who unfortunately was uh, was actually dead at this stage, and he'd obviously left this uh, all you know this uh, great big plantation behind with uh, with no next of kin. So uh, uh, John Paul Jones very very happily scoops that one up for himself, finds himself very very comfortable indeed once he settled in Virginia. But of course, we're well into the 1770s here at this stage, and I'm sure you all know what is brewing on the horizon here. The American Revolutionary War is coming to us very very quickly indeed, and so. In 1775, Jones travels to Philadelphia and he he volunteers his services as a naval officer in the newly established Continental Navy. Now, I will tell you this, they were bloody glad to have him. There weren't a lot of experienced naval commanders kicking about over there at the time. And so anyone who knew their way around a ship, very, very welcome indeed in the Continental Navy. And here we go. We've got this bloke, John Paul Jones. He's been sailing ships across the Atlantic. He knows knows his bloody rudders from his fork. Foxels. He knows his sails from his yard arms. He, he, he's a he's a mar- maritime man through and through, just like me, as you can tell. And so he's a great pickup here for the Continental Navy. Now, Richard Henry Lee, who uh, was one of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, he backed Jones' application to uh, to the Navy. And shortly after this, Jones got the gig as a first lieutenant or lieutenant, as they say over in the US these days, on a frigate called Alfred. So he served on the John, on the Betsy, and now he's on the Alfred. Anyway. Again, another waste of a name. Whatever. 
In February 1776, the Alfred left for its first assignment, a raid on uh, on the British-controlled Nassau. And uh, Jones had a very unique honour as he's part of this uh, part of the, part of this mission here. As the ship sailed down the Delaware River, he became the first person ever to raise the very first American naval ensign over a ship. The ship, the the flag is called the Grand Union flag. Looks very similar to the uh, the East India Company's flag. I guess it looks very similar to the, for that matter, the uh, the current flag of Hawaii. And this is the first time this ever been done. And the honor falls on John Paul Jones. So uh, you know, we, we talked a little. We talk a little bit about this bloke being uh, the father of the U.S. Navy, and, and this is one of the reasons he was there. I mean, basically, when uh, an, an American warship was was sent off for one of the first times, uh, you know, under American colours, there like that. Anyway, the Alfred heads off to Nassau for the raid. Uh, you know, a little bit of a mumpy ride it was. They ran into the British at one point, but uh, our mate makes it back safe and sound. Jones, uh, and once he is, he, Jones actually is put in charge of a sloop called Providence. Now. He did all sorts of, uh, you know, boring but pretty important stuff on the Providence. He transported goods and supplies. He moved troops around to help the war effort, uh, escort missions, which we all know are the absolute worst. And he did get up to some exciting stuff as well. You know, he undertook a, a voyage to Nova Scotia where he took 16 ships as prizes. Had a few other uh, other adventures here and there, trying to free prisoners, uh, doing all sorts of other stuff. Oh, one of the things he did, he captured a British ship that was bound for Canada that was filled with uh, cold weather gear, basically winter military uniforms for the British troops there. <laughs> and uh, more more than a few uh, more than a few blokes would have had a, a shivery old winter over there at the end of 1776, thanks to Jones, I reckon. These winter uniforms, actually, as it happens, they ended up being sent to uh, to Valley Forge, where Washington's troops uh, benefited from enormously. Obviously, very very cold winter there, in the lead up to the famous crossing of the Delaware. So he had a pretty you know pretty pretty instrumental, pretty important impact on the on the war effort, both uh, on the land and the sea. Anyway. He's kicking goals with both feet. Fair to say that as a captain, he's doing a great job wherever he's sent, getting stuff done, helping with the revolution all over the place. But unfortunately, he's not kicking goals when it comes to politics. Quite the opposite, in fact. He starts bluing with some of the Navy's top brass who believe, he, he believes are holding back his career. Now, as I've said, this bloke was smart, good-looking fellow, very, very effective captain, very, very able seaman. Unfortunately, not not the nicest bloke some of the time. Definitely definitely not the most politically savvy fella, and he did make a fair few enemies as well as the friends that he made. And uh, unfortunately, at this, uh, you know, as, as a result of this beef that he sort of kicked up with some of the Navy com- naval commanders there, poor old Jones, he's shunted off away from big prestigious assignments, and instead he's given command of, a, of another sloop called Ranger, which is an excellent name this time around. And in November 1777, he's actually ordered to head over to France. He sailed across the Atlantic there to help the cause of the revolution over there. So he's sort of he's sort of, you know, hidden away from the from the front lines of the war and, and you know, sort of put into what, you know, is is much less of an exciting and prestigious position. He's not happy about it, but he's a very dutiful bloke and he does what he's told all the same. Heads over to France and uh, guess who's there to welcome him? Benjamin Franklin, who is over there, he's over in France at this stage as uh, you know, he's doing a bit of diplomacy, a bit of this, a bit of that. Uh, a couple of other blokes, a couple of other famous uh, sort of founding father types over there at this stage as well. And Franklin is there to welcome um, uh, to welcome Jones when he arrives. He says, oh, g'day, fella, you know, come in, come in, enjoy yourself. Go, go, bloody got a you know big stack of cheeseburgers over there, bloody big gulp you can help yourself to, just like home it is over here. And the two of them actually start cutting about together, start hanging out, having a chat, whatever else, getting to know each other a little bit. They get on like a house on fire. They ended up being very well, lifelong friends. They end up becoming very, very good mates indeed. And together, they're making plans about all sorts of stuff, you know, warships that are being built, naval campaigns, and, and you know, everything like that. So it ends up it ends up looking like Jones actually going to be pretty bloody useful on the other side, side of the Atlantic there, which he's very, very happy about, as, as you can imagine there. So... 
On the 6th of February, 1778, short time after Jones arrives, France officially signs the Treaty of Alliance with America, making uh, making them one of the very first nations on earth to recognise the US as an independent, sovereign nation. Now, interestingly, one of the consequences of this was that the Ranger became the first ever US ship, right, to be saluted by their new allies, which was another important diplomatic marker of the, you know, of the US's kind of new status as, a, as an independent nation. Might not sound like much, but it, it was, uh, you know, a very, a very important diplomatic signpost or waypoint there for the, for the Americans to sort of, uh, you know, tick off. Anyway, anyway, after a few months in France, uh, Jones, he's back on the sea. On the 10th of April, 1778, he, uh, he sets sail for the Irish Sea as he's going to go and muck about with British shipping there. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't have the best crew under his command. Based on what I read, it actually sounded like these blokes would have uh, you know, be, been better suited to the, the pirate life of our mates like Steed Bonnet and Mary Reed and Bonnie and Jack Rackham and all the rest of them back, uh, you know, like 70, 70, 80 years ago here. Um, because all these, all, all the crew wanted to do, they wanted to plunder and pillage and loot and steal, you know, whereas the Ranger was properly an actual factual military vessel with rules and regulations and order and all the rest of it. So Jones is having a tricky old time with his crew, especially one of his second in command, who's a, a bloke named Lieutenant Thomas Simpson. They don't get on too well at all, and uh, an old mate, uh, old mate Simpson, there is actually leading the, actively leading the crew astray, and you know, encouraging them to be, you know, be a little bit more, you know, piratical than they than they uh, definitely should have been, considering that again they were part of the armed forces of, of a nation that was attempting to establish itself as legitimate. Anyway. Jones having a tricky old time with his crew. They don't seem to be, uh, you know, interested in fighting for independence so much as they are interested in fighting for booty and riches. They're not keen on putting themselves in danger. They're much more interested in, you know, risk-free raids and the like like that. So quite wisely, I suppose, deciding that discretion is the better part of valour. Jones, he has a think about it, and he decides to sail for Whitehaven, which is a harbour he knows very, very well indeed. The reason for that is that's where his career as a sailor began. It's where he set sail, uh, you know, at at the tender age of 13 there. And he talks his crew into attacking the harbour. He's got a sort of a delicate balance here because he needs to meaningfully disrupt British shipping. He needs to actually make actual effort, you know, an effort to fight a war with them. But at the same time, he recognises that, you know, he's got to, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And he needs to get his crew on side here. So the crew, again, not too thrilled to have this sort of stick in the mud who's, uh, you know, worried about boring things like honour and glory and all that sort of stuff. But again, they they agree. They think, all right, you know what, you know what we'll go and we'll go and loot and plunder Whitehaven. Should be good, uh, should be good fun. And so they set sail for Whitehaven. Now, unfortunately, the crew may have agreed to this trip, but the wind, it did not. And uh, they the, the ranger is blown away from Whitehaven quite some distance before even being able to launch the attack. They're blown a long way west, all the way basically to towards Ireland here. But no worries, because Jones has got a backup plan now. He knows that there's a British warship, the HMS Drake, which is moored not too far away. So he goes to his crew and he says, listen here, fellas, great big British ship there, just waiting to be attacked over there in Carrick Fergus. What do you reckon? How about we go and have a crack, go and capture that, you know, honour, glory, all the rest of it. And they say, oh, nah, Captain, mate, look, that sounds that sounds pretty bloody dangerous, to be honest. Not a fan of that plan, eh? And so Jones says, oh, bloody hell, you bloody lily-livered cowards. How about we attack it at night? Much much less risk for us that way. What about that? How, do you, you know, what do you, how does that one sound? Yeah. The crew, they have a think about it. They go, all right, yep, yeah, okay, that sounds better. Let's do that, sneak in under the cover of darkness. And so, sure enough, the ranger sneaks in. Uh, you know, mid, after midnight it is, sneaks up on the Drake, middle of the night, just like that, stealthy as anything they are, and they sail up right song, alongside it. What they're going to do, they're going to drop the anchor, they're going to uh, they're going to quickly, you know, overwhelm the ship, they're going to board it, whatever else, and uh, take her unawares. Now, they approach, silent as the wind, just like that, they get closer and closer, and then don't stop, and sail right past the Drake, 
without even slowing down. If you'll believe it, the bloke who was supposed to drop the anchor stuffed it all up beyond belief, forgot to drop it at the right time, and so the ranger passes the drake like actual literal ships in the night. Apparently, the bloke in charge of the anchor was pissed out of his head, but whatever the reason for the cock up here, Joe, Joe's got no choice. He has to make himself scarce. The alarm is raised on the Drake, all the people there are getting ready to you know, fight the fight against, uh, against the ranger, and so he, he, he chucks a Yui and he gets the hell out of there. Now, this is sort of, you know, zero from two here. Pretty embarrassing for old uh, old JPJ here. He's not having a great time. And so what he decides, he goes, all right, I'm going to save face. The attack on Whitehaven, it's going ahead all the same. Let's go and have another crack at this raid here. This one goes a lot better in the sense that they actually make it to the town. But after that, well, yeah, look, bit of a sloppy old affair it was, I can tell you that much. Because after the ranger approached Whitehaven, Jones lowered the boats and led 30 blokes into the harbour. There are hundreds and hundreds of British ships moored there, big big ones, small ones, little ones, red ones, blue ones, all sorts, right? And a stack of them are full of coal, right? Jones decides, very smart, very good idea here, he wants to burn them all to cinders, obviously full of coal, they're going to go up like a, you know, like a straw house there. Um, and this will strike a huge blow to the British, of course, losing a bunch of coal that was going to be shipped off who knows where. Now, on top of that, a bit of good old-fashioned arson in the town itself wouldn't go astray, Jones reckons, maybe set fire to a couple of the buildings, just really send a message. So his plan is land the boats, begin the mayhem, have a great time. But before this, they stop very, very prudently to spike the cannons that made up the town's defences there. Obviously, you know, some batteries installed with uh, with cannons to defend, to defend the harbour. And Jones stops there, destroys these spikes, these cannons. Uh, very, very smart thing to do. Didn't want Whitehaven, you know, waking up and, and sinking them, obviously. Anyway, they sneak in on these boats and uh, they, you know, they, they sidle up alongside these great big coal ships there. And when they get there, when they get to, uh, ready to start to set them on fire there like that, they realise, oh, bloody hell, we forgot to bring oil to start the fires with. So, fantastic. Another another great big stuff up here. No worries, says Jones. Solutions are his business. We can still fix this, he says. He picks a couple of blokes and says, right, you fellas, you head into town, find a place where they've got oil, and just nick a bunch of it from it. You know, find a shop or something like that, bring it back, get it back here, and, uh, and we'll set these ships on fire. They say, oh, Captain, off they go. But he chose extremely poorly. Because off these blokes go, they're hunting about for a place they could rack some lantern oil or something flammable like that. And then they come to a pub and they say to themselves, oh, they go, oh, we've got some time, don't we? I mean, come on, we've got, we got plenty of time. We can just we can, we can nip in there for a you know, quick pint and Jonesy won't notice. You know, she'll be right. We'll get the oil. We'll go back. We'll be quick as anything. Don't even worry about it. Unbelievably, in the middle of an attempted arson attack on a harbour full of British ships, these blokes, these absolute idiots, decide to get on the source in the middle of their mission. Obviously, they lose track of time, they get sozzled, and by the time they realise, oh, bloody hell, we've got the bloody oil, what are we going to do? They, they manage to track some down somehow, obviously, you know, pissed out of their heads as they are. But by the time they get back to the ships, dawn has almost broken. What an absolute disaster. This means that Jones, he's running out of time before the whole town wakes up. He, you know, he does his best. He and his crew, they hurriedly get to work. They're trying to set some of the bigger ships on fire there. But then, get this, goes from bad to worse because one of the crew, some perfidious, traitorous mongrel, right? He runs off and warns the people in Whitehaven what's going on. Unbelievable. Scuppered by his own crew here. Poor old Jones. He doesn't even manage to get one ship properly on fire before all the locals, they come swarming down to the harbour. The town has got two fire engines and they use them to put out this uh, you know the small blaze that has been set on one of the ships there so some of them also some of the townsfolk also actually run to the cannons too to fire on the you know the retreating jones and his crew as they're trying to get you know get the hell out of dodge there but luckily obviously he took care of uh, spiking them beforehand otherwise he would have been absolutely he would have been well and truly buggered there so good thinking ahead of time at least he at least he escaped in one piece anyway 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. With this total farce that was Whitehaven properly behind him, not a great start for someone who we now know as, you know, the father of the US Navy. Uh, Jones, uh, he comes up with another plan here to mess with the British. He decides that he's got to head back. He's going to head back to his native Scotland here, and specifically to a bay near Kirkcudbright where the Earl of Selkirk lived. Now, his his crew, again, they are they are just champing at the bit for a bit of booty, uh, a bit of money here. They want, to, they want to make some kind of impression. They want to sort of, you know, loot and, and plunder and pillage. And so he reckons, all right, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to this, this bloke's house. We're going to go and kidnap the Earl, right? And we're going to ransom him back to the British. Not only are we going to make a ton of money, we'll also exchange him for American who had been impressed by the uh, the Royal Navy. And again, I think I explained this in the, in the episode about the War of 1812. This is not impressed like, oh, wow, bloody nice ships you got there. Very impressive. I'd love to come and fight for the you know, king and country there. Not so much that. I mean impressed as in, you know, forced to service against someone's will. Bloody terrible way to behave there. Anyway, Jones rocks up on St. Mary's Isle, which actually isn't an island, by the way, false advertising there. He rocks up in the Ranger and he goes to pay the Earl a little visit. Now, it turns out the Earl isn't there. He's off somewhere else. But no worries, his wife, Helen, is uh, is there to, to receive, you know, this, <laughs> this, this I guess, I was going to say uh, foreigner, but I guess actually he's Scottish, isn't he? He's just, uh, just sailing under American colours. Anyway, anyway, she's not about to be taken in here. She's not about to be taken for a ride by Jones. And uh, she actually very cleverly managed to pull a fast one. Uh, on our mate, because he's threatening to kidnap the Earl's heir. Uh, but the young fella's governess does a great job of whisking him away to safety while, uh, you know, while uh, the, the Earl's wife is uh, having a chat with uh, with Jones there. And uh, eventually she agrees to instead buy Jones off instead of, you know, any kind of kidnap or ransom or anything else like that. So he, she just says, look, we'll give you a stack of cash if you get out of here. Jones goes, yep, fair enough. No worries. Sounds good to me. And uh, so off the butler goes to fetch a, a big bag of silver. But what does this sneaky butler do, however? He fills the bag halfway up with coal and then whacks a bit of silver over the top to hide the coal there like that. Jones takes the sack. Thanks very much for this. Better than nothing you'd think. I'm off now, Helen, old mate. Cheers and catch you later. But no, once his crew realise what's happened here and that he's been diddled, they don't want to leave. You'll remember how keen they were for plunder and they insist on getting their money's worth here. So they go back and they snatch some of the uh, some of the, 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 the plate, the, the plate, the, the family's plate there. They make off with it. They're like this. Although, check this out. The story goes that Jones, he was so ashamed of the conduct of his crew, you know, robbing them like, uh, like common pirates. Apparently him doing it for a ransom was fine, but his crew, you know, just nicking the plate there like that, not happy with that. He actually took it on himself to buy back the plate, right, later on when they tried to sell it in, uh, in France, and took it back to the Earl once the war had finished. What a bloke he was. Unbelievable. Anyway, here and now, 1788, Jones is again at a bit of a loose end, uh, seeing as he's done very little damage to the British overall. He's not captured any of their ships. He hasn't made off with much of their treasure. And so he's still looking for a chance, you know, for, for, the, for the one big score here, the one big job. And... Uh, he decides, well, you know, second time lucky with Whitehaven, I guess. Why don't we uh, try second time lucky with the Drake once again? Still over there in Ireland, Carrick, Carrick Fergus. 
And this time he prepares himself for uh, for an attack a little more thoroughly here. He does a good bit of scouting, good bit of recon, and actually captures a British scouting boat uh, that, that's been uh, looking for him as well. And he finds out that the Drake has been loaded up with soldiers and is intending to hunt down the Ranger and board it with overwhelming force here, all of these Marines he's got on board. Now, Jones goes bugger that for a joke. Let's just bar- blast them to bits with our cannons here before they come you know, close enough to board us. Easy game. No worries. We'll get it done like that. Shouldn't be too difficult. So they make for the Drake. Uh, they sail over towards Carrick Fergus and the two ships are joined in battle in the afternoon of the 24th of April and they just batter the ever-loving bejesus out of each other for ages and ages with their cannons. The battle goes on just with cannons for over an hour. And the Ranger, again, it's kiting away, keeping its distance away from the grappling hooks of the Drake there. And eventually... Jones and the Ranger emerge victorious. After this hard-fought battle, the captain of the Drake was actually killed, and the British, they lose the ship. And uh, Jones, he captures the Drake, he puts his, he, that second-in-command, the bloke I was telling about, Lieutenant Simpson, in charge of it, and he gets ready to deliver the prize to the Americans in France. Now, as I mentioned, Jones doesn't get on with uh, with his lieutenant there. Um, he, he reckons, again, that the Simpson is sort of leading the crew astray, making them behave like pirates, while Simpson and the crew, largely speaking, they, they reckon that Jones is obsessed you know, with his old with his own image and he's full of pride. He just wants to do it. It's going to make him look better to his bosses. Um, But the feud between them is actually so bad that when they get back to France with this prize ship, Jones tries to have Simpson court-martialed. He isn't, as John Adams, the bloke who goes on to succeed Washington as the second president of the United States. He was over in France at this stage. Uh, He intervenes. And he calms them both down a little bit, says, geez, fellas, just, just you know, cool your jets a little bit. We'll get this one sorted out. Hard to say exactly what went on one between Jones and Simpson to make each other hate, make them hate each other so much. They, they definitely hate each other. We know that. But And the crew obviously definitely didn't like Jones very much as a captain. But, you know, whether he was a you know glory-hunting pride monster or, or a captain just trying to do his best for the war, if it hasn't really been conclusively determined one way or the other. But, the, you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of bad blood there between, uh, between captain and crew. Anyway, the more important part of this story, and, of course, the one that uh, history tends to focus on a lot more was the fact that the capture of the Drake was one of the finest moments in the history of the Continental Navy. Obviously not a very long history at this stage. One of the finest moments, I guess, in the entire existence of the Continental Navy before it was superseded later by the US Navy. So again, tying into this idea of John Paul, John Paul Jones being one of the fathers of, of the US Navy, he really sort of was one of the first people to seize glory as uh, you know, as, as an officer, as, as a commander, as a captain, uh, as part of this organisation that, again, today, you know, is, is one, of the, one of the biggest military operations in the entire world there. So, uh, you know, the, the capture of the Drake was, um, I guess, it, it sort of stood out in the American naval campaign during the Revolutionary War because, broadly speaking, they didn't do too well at sea. They didn't do a lot of, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot of successes uh, on the water there during the Revolutionary War. So this was a standout victory and definitely one that meant that John Paul Jones' name was, was poised to go down as this as this war hero uh, in, in American history. But, but it gets better than that here because after this business with the Drake, Jones is now, he gets a bit of a promotion. He gets a bit of a, you know, he gets a couple of slaps on the back here and he gets put in charge of a much bigger ship here, the 42-gun USS Bonhomme Richard, which had been donated to the Americans by a very wealthy French merchant. Pretty bloody good of him, you'd think there. And in 1779, 
Jones is given a mission aboard the Bonhomme Richard here to run interference as a Spanish and French invasion fleet sailed to Britain. So he was invo- he was actually ordered to uh, to protect the uh, the invasion a little bit by distracting uh, British ships and having them chase 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 him away from where the French and the uh, and, and the Spanish fleet was uh, you know was going to be sailing through. So off he goes uh, again on this on this mission to distract the British. He sails uh, through the Irish Sea with this uh, sort of small fleet. I think he had five or six ships of his own in. Uh, in a little little squadron there that he had, and um, he dutifully does exactly what he was told. Sets sail, draws aggro from the British, and uh, they begin to chase this fleet, uh, this little squadron of uh, of American ships there, uh, all the way through the Irish Sea, up around the north coast of Scotland, and over to the east coast of uh, of Britain there, like that around Yorkshire. Now, uh, obviously, he's done a great job of uh, of keeping the British ships occupied and and distracted, but it comes to an end. On the 23rd of September, 1779, near Flamborough Head, when uh, when Jones was finally intercepted by an enormous British frigate, the HMS Serapis, which moved in to attack immediately. Now, Jones, even with the you know the the numbers, the numerical advantage in terms of you know the, the number of ships he had there, um, the HMS Serapis is enormous, and it, you know he, Jones recognizes that he is completely outgunned. He knew that he'd lose any battle that came down to just cannon fire. And uh, as the battle begins, he's taking an absolute battering. He's taking a battering from the Serapis. His ship is in a bad way. You know, there's masts falling down. There's damage in the rigging. Some of his sailors are being killed as well, having an absolutely terrible time. And as the Serapis passes, they actually call out, they signal to the uh, uh, to the um, uh, the Bonhomme Richard and to Jones, demanding their surrender. And this is where Jones apparently uttered his legendary line. He said, I have not yet begun to fight. Although... You know, as with most cool quotes like this that go down in history, it might just be apocryphal, but very cool all the same and still has a rich legacy within the the U.S. Armed Forces even to this day. Anyway, do you know what he does instead of uh, surrendering? He lives up to his word. He has only just begun to fight. Oh, sorry, he's not even just yet begun to fight here because what he does is that he deliberately sails the Bonhomme Richard towards the Serapis. Just like that, he intends to deliberately tangle his ship up with the Serapis and prevent it, therefore, from blasting his small fleet to Kingdom, kingdom Come. He orders his sailors to man the deck guns. He puts soldiers up in the uh, in the masts and the rigging. They've got rifles there, the Marines up the top there. And then they bear down on the Serapis and he locks the two ships together, tangling up the masts and the rigging just like that and making sure that, you know they're sort of interlocked with each other and they can't move. Now, his men then begin to shoot all of the sailors on the deck of the Serapis. They're better prepared for close quarters combat rather than fighting at a distance. And so they do a wonderful job of absolutely giving it to the British. They do such a good job. But, 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 you know how sometimes, you know, you'll be doing something, you're performing a task or getting something done and like a little kid or, you know, some idiot grown up for, for that matter, I guess, will, will come along and try to help only to make it much, much worse and make it harder for you to do what you're trying to do. This is exactly what happens here with the Bonhomme Richard because seeing that the Bonhomme Richard has immobilized the Serapis, another one of the ships in Jones's fleet, the Alliance, broke off from the other ships and moved into attack. The Alliance put itself in a firing position, fired a huge broadside. Look, Mum, I'm helping, right? Which, of course, ended up doing more damage to the Bonhomme Richard than it did to the Serapis. But then again, apparently, some of the reading I did indicated that Jones... Uh, didn't get on too well with the captain of the Alliance either. So maybe that came into it uh, there. He's very good at making himself enemies. He was, apparently. Anyway, the battle raged on between the Bonhomme Richard and the Serapis fighting at close quarters. 
but the Bonhomme Richard in a very, very bad way. And actually, at one point, it looked like its uh, its ensign had actually been removed, right? And which is obviously what uh, it was a sort of a traditional sign of surrender there. But it must have just been shot off by a stray fire because uh, Jones is still fighting as doggedly as ever. The Alliance turned around, chucked a Yui, got ready for another broadside, and once again blasted the Bonhomme Richard to bits. But also this time does enough damage to the Serapis as well to make the British captain, Captain Pearson, realise that the jig was up. He isn't able to manoeuvre himself to, in, a, in a position to fire on the Alliance. He realises he's going to be surrounded. His men are dying like uh, like flies there like that. And as a result, the Serapis surrenders. It is taken by a prize, taken as a prize by Jones. Good thing too, because the Bonham Richard was absolutely ruined and he needed a new ship here. They actually spent some time trying to repair the Richard, but it was it was no good. They uh, they couldn't make it seaworthy. And uh, ultimately, after trying to pump water out for a couple of days, after trying to, you know, bung it back together there like that, they, they ultimately abandon it to the briny deeps. It sinks. And instead, Jones takes command of the Serapis itself. And... Uh, but given the, the state of the fleet, and especially the Serapis, they don't think they're going to make it back safely to France. So instead, they head to Amsterdam. Jones uh, sails off to Amsterdam in the neutral Netherlands, in the United Provinces there, um, which led, some, led to some pretty interesting consequences. Uh, because, I mean, look, he did, he did very well for himself. He landed, you know, he sort of going to all the, he landed the, in, the, in the Dutch port there, and he's going around all these dinner parties, whatever else. He's having a great time in the upper echelons of Dutch society. He was hailed as the terror of the English for his exploits, and he was a very amusing uh, house guest as, you know, he went around and had dinners and all that sort of stuff with people and, uh, and rubbed shoulders with the rich and famous there. However, the British objected very strongly to Jones being allowed to, you know, tow this this busted up uh, British ship into the Dutch harbour just like that, you know, bringing prize ships into a neutral port. The British argued, actually, as a matter of fact, that Jones was fighting for an unrecognised nation and therefore was a pirate. Now, the Dutch, sensibly, they said, look, we're not going to get into it. We aren't going to sort of, you know, try to separate you two squabbling kids. We're not a referee here. We're not going to kick up a fuss. Despite being actually, technically speaking, on pretty shaky legal ground, given that, you know, in the strictest definition of the law... Jones was a pirate. You know, he was flying He was flying the colours of a nation that wasn't recognised at this stage by a lot of nations around the world. I mean, very few, in fact. And as a result, it wouldn't have been unreasonable to call him, you know, a private, much less a privateer here. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was shaky legal ground for the Dutch there. But all the same, Jones actually gets away with it, um, even though at waiting, ready, you know, like, like guard dogs they are, just off the Dutch coast, just outside of Dutch waters there, was a squadron of British ships. They know that Jones is stuck in the port of Amsterdam. They know that as soon as he leaves, he's fair game, and they're going to jump on him just like this. So these, uh, you know, the American vessels are going to be attacked by the British as soon as they leave the safety of Amsterdam. However, Jones, knowing what's going on, he puts a he puts his uh, you know he puts his thinking cap on, and he makes an arrangement to sneak all of his ships out with a Dutch convoy. And so, in December 1779, he sailed back to France safely, and of course, is hailed a hero. This is such a huge victory for the Continental Navy, which, as I say, hasn't been having a lot of luck. And so, Jones has has actually got back to back victories here for them. A very very important message, not only for the war effort, but also you know just for morale and for the perspective or the perception, I guess, that Americans had, uh, you know, back on the continent there uh, in terms of recognising what was possible to them now that they had a proper real naval force there. So, you know, John Paul Jones was living large in the hearts and the minds of the people, uh, you know, who were concerned with how the war was going because of his, uh, his quite fearsome exploits against the British. However, however, 
quite interestingly, Jones actually didn't get up to too much for the rest of the war. He was awarded the title of Chevalier by uh, King Louis the, uh, the the French King King Louis the Sixteenth. Uh, he actually insisted on being uh, on the use of that title from that point forward. You know, it, it, it did seem like he did like his titles and accolades. This bloke, he, he insisted. He actually appeared on a uh, on a medal that was uh, given to him ten years later by the Continental Congress. There, so anyway, all the same. He didn't get up to much. Didn't get up to all to, uh, all that much after this business with the Serapis. He spent time with the French Navy. He studied, studied Navy tactics and the like, stuff like that. But then when the war ended in 1783, his career was just cut short. The Continental Navy wasn't long for the world. With the war over, the remaining, you know, the remaining American ships that weren't very many, there's only like 10 or 11, uh, 10 or 11 of them left after the after the war. They were too expensive for 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 the young nation to keep around there. And uh, so officers like Jones, they're just out of work. This new American nation, they didn't have a navy. They wouldn't for the next decade or so. And as a result, Jones and quite a lot of other people who had fought on the seas, for, you know, during the American Revolution, just had nothing to do. So you know, Jones, despite being a, a war hero and in, an incredibly important figure in the establishment of, of American sea power, he was out of work. As I say, they gave him this big golden medal, but uh, nothing in the way of meaningful command after this, despite his achievements, despite his service record, despite being, you know, a close friend, by being very admired, like strongly admired by Benjamin Franklin. He ended up at a, a bit of a loose end in the mid-1780s with no real prospects in the United States. So, after cutting about here and there for a while, Jones actually ended up finding work, if you'll believe it, as a naval commander for Empress Catherine II of Russia in 1787. He ended up becoming a Russian naval officer. Now, his career was not a long one and not a particularly successful one either. His colleagues were not big fans of him at all. Jones didn't play politics very well. Again, we've talked about this, you know, and and going into the Russian Navy, the deck was definitely stacked against him from the beginning. A number of other officers that were fighting for the Russians were also British, and they might have, you know, turned the rest of the officers against him, given how Jones gave him a, a thorough caning during the, uh, the War for Independence there. Um, but whatever the reason, right? Jones very very unpopular, very unpopular with the with the Russian top brass, and he didn't last long in the Russian navy. He actually left before 1790. He moved to Paris in that year, and he was actually able to live comfortably off a a Russian navy pension that he somehow managed to get himself until 1792. And in 1792. He was given one last job uh, by the US while obviously living in Paris. They got in touch and uh, he accepted a job as a consul and a negotiator and was given the task to go to Algiers and negotiate the release of some American prisoners that were being held there. However, unfortunately, before he could leave for this assignment, Jones died. He was found dead in his apartment in Paris on the 18th of July in 1792. He was just 45 years old. John Paul Jones is one of the one of the first people to win glory on the sea for the United States, and uh, he did a lot to establish the idea that the United States could, and of course eventually would, become a major sea power. He's often talked about as being one of the fathers of the U.S. Navy, not because he established it or funded it or planned out its you know a, a grand course for its uh, its future, anything like that, but just because he got out there and showed people in the U.S. what could be done. The U.S. later used things like the capture of the Drake and the Battle of Flamborough Head as examples of why the United States needed a navy. And and today, of course, the United States Navy, it's unrivaled in its, its ability to project hard political power around the world. Now, look, John Paul Jones, he's not, you know, 
he's not single-handedly responsible for that, of course. No one's saying that. And you can't claim that, you know, the United States Navy only exists because one bloke one time killed a, a mutinous crew member with a sword and fled to Virginia. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say here. But still, the legacy of John Paul Jones and his achievements, it's, even, it's still very, very recognisable, very real today as setting the scene, setting the stage for the course that America would take as a sea power. After his death, Jones was actually mummified. He was buried in France at great expense in a lead coffin. Uh, so in the event that the United States actually ever wanted to retrieve his body, they'd, they'd, be, you know, they'd be better able to, to find, find where he'd been buried and bring him back home safely. But I tell you what, it took him a while. It did. Bloody, it took him a long, long time. But sure enough, that is what finally happened. He finally, he was, he was taken back to the United States after at long, long last. In 1905, if you'll believe it, Jones' coffin was finally dug up. His remains were transported back to the United States on an armoured cruiser with a, with a full, full Navy escort for much of the way as well. And on the 24th of April, 1905, a memorial ceremony was held for Jones with, in, in his adopted home country with President Theodore Roosevelt eulogising him very proudly indeed. And finally, on the 26th of January in 1913, Jones was finally laid to rest in an enormous marble and bronze sarcophagus at the, uh, at the US Naval Academy in Maryland. And as far as I know, his remains are there to this day. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of John Paul Jones, another another seafaring adventure. I do hope you're not getting sick of them. I mean, look, if you are, it's your fault. You should be sending me in topics. You should be send me, sending me an idea. Actually, no, it's not your fault because I've got a list that's about 50 topics long and then I just read something else that I'm interested in and, and you know, do that instead. So I do apologise. If you'd like to hear me do something different, though, please get in touch. The easiest way to do that, halfhourshistory.net. There's a contact form there. That's definitely the best way to get in touch. You can email me as well, but that is, the contact form is the best way to do it. I'm, I'm guaranteed to see it if you do that. I've read every single email that's been sent to me. I haven't quite replied to them all, but I'm getting around to it. I've had a busy couple of weeks. I'll get to it before too much longer. Don't worry about it. A um, couple of more requests for merch. Uh, getting to the point now that there are enough that I'm actually considering it very seriously, maybe some t-shirts maybe some mugs some tote bags i don't know what kind of you know tripe you guys want but please let me know get in touch and tell me if you know if if t-shirts went up for i don't know 20 25 bucks something reasonable like that would, would you buy them um and uh, and you know other stuff that you might be interested in and, and what you might want i was thinking the herodotus with a pair of sunglasses on a t-shirt will look quite good so if people want it please let me know because you know i'll put some effort into uh um uh, you know into into getting them made and i'll be doing it with the money that has been given to me by the very generous patrons that support the show via Patreon. If you want to join their ranks, of course, halfhistory.net amongst the links to uh, you know to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, whatever else. You can find a link to the Patreon site and uh, and, and chuck me some money there. And again, all of that money will be put back into the show, and uh, I'll be I'll be making you know all sorts of silly nonsense with that for you to buy as well. So anyway, that's enough of that. Um, I'm running out of naval based questions for to end the show with i do apologize for this one is a bit of a stinker but you know what i don't care it's my podcast i make the rules you're not my dad you can't tell me what to do so this week's question posed on reddit by reddit historian taiko brahi 2020 they want to know is the poop deck on a ship what i think it is (laughs) 